This is the Paul Kirtley Podcast, episode 44. The Paul Kirtley Podcast. Wilderness bushcraft, survival skills and outdoor life. Welcome, welcome to episode 44 of the Paul Kirtley Podcast. Now, my guest today is John Hudson. John is Chief Instructor at the UK Military's DSTO, that is the Defence SEER Training Organisation, SEER being Survival, Evasion, Resistance and Extraction. In simple terms, John is the UK Military's Chief Survival Instructor. John has also been involved in TV work, appearing in several Discovery Channel shows, including Dude, You're Screwed. In the conversation you're about to hear, we delve into John's background, how he became fascinated by survival, as well as discussing what his current role involves. There's lots of survival information out there. There are many survival manuals, old and new, and there has been a ton of survival entertainment TV shows made in the last decade or so. And then, of course, there's no end of people offering survival tips and advice on YouTube and various other platforms, not to mention people putting survival in the title of their channels. But John is the real deal, originally an RAF helicopter pilot and now the survival instructor responsible for training all the survival instructors in the UK military and therefore, by extension, responsible for the content of the survival training of all branches of the service, from fast jet pilots to infantrymen operating behind enemy lines. So I wanted to learn more about John's approach, what he thinks is important to impart in survival training and how he teaches people to prioritise in survival situations. Given his background in teaching real survival skills to people who may well have to rely on them, I was also interested to know John's thoughts on survival TV shows, particularly since he has been involved in the making of a few of them. Towards the end of the conversation, I ask John what myths around survival just need killing dead. So make sure you stick around to the end. But without further ado, please enjoy the following conversation with John Hudson. John, it's an absolute honour to have you on the show. I feel like this has been a long time coming. How are you today? What are you up to? I've just uh, come home slightly early, but then I did start slightly early. But yeah, firstly, thanks very much for the invite, mate. And uh, sorry it's taken this long to get around to it. But yeah, I've been um, been doing the sort of unglamorous end of survival instruction this week, which is looking at all the, the course material and the uh, what we would probably call instructor notes. But in my world, it's the JSP, a joint, sub- joint service publication. So the non-glam end of the spectrum. Uh, unlike you, who's just come back from the, the more glamorous sharp end of it all. Oh, well, hobnobbing with other bushcraft and survival instructors. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that was good. It doesn't happen very often, so it was it was good. It was good. Yeah, so, John, um, yeah. for people who don't know you um, and know of you, could you give us a little brief bio of, of what your current position is, what you do for a living, and then we can maybe delve back into the, the history of how that came about a little bit? Yeah. Okay, mate, so... My title at work is Chief Instructor. Um, where I work is the Defence SEER Training Organisation, or the Ministry of Defence's Survival School, if you like. Um, it's down in Cornwall, which is where I live. And we train thousands of servicemen and women per year in what to do 
if they end up on the, the wrong side of camping. So if they go out for a patrol or even for an expedition and they are beyond what we would know as procedural or positive control. So for some reason or other, they're separated from their chain of command, they've fallen off the back of the patrol, their aircraft's crashed, they're in the wrong place at the wrong time. So we train those guys and girls what to do to get rescued quickly. And my job is I work with a, a small team of guys who've been there for quite a while and we teach the instructors. So it's kind of a um, like a triangular effect where we, we, we train the trainers, they train some other guys and the individuals, and that's how you can get a small school to train thousands of people a year. Right, right. So um, is it across all the different services that you've got people coming to your school, Army, Navy, uh, yeah. and Air Force? Yeah, yeah, exactly, mate. We've got all, all the services, Royal Marines, Royal Navy, uh, Royal Air Force, and Army. And within that, you've got quite a lot of different cap badges, as we would call it, but different sort of regiments and different backgrounds. Um, and it's not all aircrew. The students that I train, because I was there when it was just the RAF school, our schools merged a few years ago, um, we teach all different services as well as having different services represented as instructors. So, yeah, it's a real mix, and it's mm -hmm. a whole, whole range of ages. Uh, Colin Towell works with us. He's written a few good survival books, and I'm working with him in a week's time. He's probably one of our more senior instructors, I would say, because he's, you know, he's working beyond retirement age. And then there's some... One of our newer guys who's just arrived, Joe Wright, he's, um, I mean, he looks like he's about 18, but he's, he's also about 25 stone and pure muscle, so you wouldn't mess with him. But, you know, we've got young through to old, really enthusiastic, keen people at every strata in there. But, yeah, a, a complete range of uh, guys and girls at the school at the moment. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We might as well dive into how you, how you got there, uh, John. You were pilot helicopter pilot how did that then meld into you moving over to survival training um well it's sort of all air crew understandably mm. we have to do survival training because um you're going to be at, at times you're going to be quite a long way from from friendly uh, help so even though i was in a, a helicopter pilot of a, a, a helicopter that only had about an hour of 20 endurance there's still the chance that we could end up in the wrong place at the wrong time so all of us had to do survival training. And, and just like I mentioned with the instructor bit, the levels of training that we do are different. So depending on your your likelihood or your risk of, of ending up being isolated depends on what level of training you get. And I was lucky, I think, that I got to do all the different packages. I went from being thrown in the sea to surviving, you know, learn how to survive in water through to surviving on land and surviving in what was back then called the, the kind of combat survival. The, the first course I ever did um, to get to be uh, an instructor on that pathway was actually while I was still at art college. I was lucky enough to be on a, a university air squadron and one Friday evening they said, anyone fancy coming on winter survival? And most people like just laughed and looked at their feet, but I had my hand up straight away. I'm like, yeah, that sounds awesome. And then, and, and then everyone from there on treated me a little bit like I had two heads. It's like, what's wrong with this guy? Why does he want to do more survival training? And I think it's, we, we mentioned this briefly before we started the, the recording, I think, but the um the sort of the natural affinity with the outdoors not everybody has it and it's important i think when we're, when we're teaching to remember that most of my students at least aren't necessarily volunteers whereas i'm sure a lot of yours are so i to, to, to answer the question i i started on the long path before i even joined the air force proper i was a university air squadron cadet i um i did survival training throughout my flying training and i loved it and whenever i had a gap in my flying training 
rather than get sent somewhere as a unwilling volunteer to go and, uh, I don't know, amend flying charts or update NOTAMs, notices to airmen, I would volunteer to go and work at the survival school down in Cornwall. Mm. Um, so I was really lucky because when I arrived, I was in my early 20s, fairly fresh-faced, unlike now, and I had a great pool of mentors that I could pick the brains from. So I just used to walk around behind these um, sort of older guys and, and pick their brains and probably annoy them because I wanted to know more about all of it. But that was my, my start point. And then when I finished flying in the early noughties, I'd already worked as an instructor at the school. I was uh, a civilian again for a short time, Oop North, where I'm from. Mm -hmm. And then this reservist job as a full-time survival instructor came up back at the school where I had worked and I, I volunteered, well, I applied uh, and was lucky enough to pass the interview and selection criterion. And ultimately, my, my job today is I'm kind of the chief instructor because I've been doing it for quite a long time in military terms. Most people tend to come to the school for two, three, at most five years. And I, I've been there since, on and off since 1999. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, were you an outdoors person when you were younger i mean you said you had that natural affinity you you put yeah you volunteered for the survival training were you were you an outdoors kid i think so i, uh -huh. I it's hard to compare because when i was growing up all kids were outdoors kids and I, I don't want to sound ancient um but <laughs> how old are you now john i'm let me check 44 right. 44 two, yeah two years younger than me then yeah am i yeah okay yeah, yeah so so as a child of the 80s like you then, Paul, it was your parents or, or, you know, when you were growing up, you were kind of expected to leave the house, weren't you, and go out and have fun? Yes. So I'd, I'd hop on my bike. And uh, luckily, I, I grew up in a fairly rural area and um, we were surrounded by countryside. So I was outdoors a lot. We used to love going, building dens and, dare I say it, lighting a fire or two when we probably wouldn't have been allowed to and just enjoying the outdoors. So I think I was pretty outdoorsy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, but then back then most people were and then as I grew up um, and got a bit older I joined the air cadets and one of the schemes that they're really involved with um, and still are is the Duke of Edinburgh's award scheme so I, I got heavily involved in, in doing those and I went to the different sort of um, award scheme levels in the DV. and that I think was what kind of put the more um, kind of academic edge on it because you can't just cuff walking through Snowdonia you have to nail down your navigation so I, whereas I'd go on long walking holidays with my family when we were out as a group of sort of 15 16 year olds with big rucksacks through going through Snowdon around Triffin you have to really be all over your nav don't you yeah. and I ended up being the, the guy in the little team that would always end up reading the map so um, I kind of went through that route really the outdoors was where we all played and then through air cadets I just kind of gravitated towards the flying element of being an air cadet and the Equally, the, the outdoors and the, the uh, hill walking part. So, unlike maybe some, you were comfortable outdoors from from the start. I mean, one of you talking about yeah. students. Um, I mean, even those students of mine who, as you rightly say, are volunteers. You know, they volunteer to come and do a course. It's something yeah. that they choose to spend their leisure time doing, some of their vacation time, holiday time. But most people in the first world live in urban or suburban environments so even so i find that a lot of people don't necessarily have a lot of outdoor experience in terms of that you know mm -hmm. even what we would term basic outdoor experience of you know hill walking or yeah. you know just being out in all weathers well yeah and i think these days the natural instinct for people if there is some inclement weather is what well, a shield your smartphone and then probably probably then dip, nip into the nearest costa, isn't it? And like you say, most people are um, 
most of the Western world now, I think, I'm sure it's over 50% the last time I looked, at, are, are in urban centres. And mm-hmm. one of the training packages that we were starting to run more and more of is urban survival at, at work. So it's it's recognised as a kind of a fourth environment on top of jungle, desert and Arctic now. And um, it's just, yeah, it, it's the modern world, isn't it? Everyone's connected all the time. Everyone's out um, in, a, in a kind of a semi-urban environment. And not a lot of people, I don't believe, and I could be wrong, but not a lot of people um, would voluntarily go on these kind of, um, certainly not from the cohort that I deal with, mate, but would go out on these uh, more arduous type expeditions. I'm mm. not saying for a moment that, that our kids are, are softer these days. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying I think that the, the cultural paradigm that people live in has shifted to a, sl- a, a much more urban-centric one. Yes, it has, I think. You know, I mean, you, you talked about playing outdoors as a kid, and we certainly mm. played outdoors as kids. And, you know, we, we would reluctantly be indoors if it was absolutely chucking it down with rain all day yeah. you know that was you know and you know if we were playing games you know like board you know we, we literally used to play board games and things until my dad bought me a zx sinclair zx spectrum when i was about 11 yeah. or 12 but even yeah. then we wouldn't play on that unless it was absolutely chucking it down outside and we had nothing else to do it was something it was like a fallback um, yeah. We were just outside on our bikes, running around the fields, in the forests, making spear throwers. And yeah. We, yeah. We, we found it. I remember we, we, we were in a quarry we shouldn't have been in once. And <clears throat> there was an old car that had been dumped in there. And we, yeah. cut, we cut out material from this car yeah. with our pen knives. And, oh, we, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and we must have only been about 12 when we did this. Um, yep. And we, we we took the sort of fabric from the inside of the roof and, and yep. we made, we used it to make, and we got rocks from the quarry and we made like um, bolar or bolas, you know, like <laughs> I think the South American things, like yeah. trying to, and lobbing those at trees in the woods to get them to wrap them around, you know, and that, that's the kind of stuff we used to do. Very <laughs> so, similar, mate. Very similar. Yeah. Whereabouts did you put, Paul? Um, I was in, at that point, I was in the Northeast. I was in County Durham okay. at that point. Yeah. Not, yeah. not to put too fine a point on it because that quarry's still there and I've done. <laughs> incriminate myself but uh, yeah, but still going yeah, yeah. sounds similar mate there was a quarry near the village I grew up in and uh, it's since been filled in like a lot of mouth but we used to go up to the quarry for hours because you know what do, what's better than throwing rocks or throwing rocks at rocks you've just thrown in the air you know you could kill hours doing that exactly yeah yeah, yeah. and then to, a, to a degree mate and I know the, the, the skills that people need these days are different and uh, having really really good hand-eye coordination on a, on a video game has got immense crossover into some realms of, of the military and civilian life mm. that kind of um, that pure manual dexterity that you gain from just being outdoors and the, all the kind of feats of balance that you're doing when you go access these dodgy places over fences you're not meant to climb you know there's a there's a kind of an adventurous spirit that gets kindled i think by doing that by crossing those boundaries absolutely absolutely and and you 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 feel more capable as an individual you know that you can do um, those yeah. things yeah yeah but it's interesting what you say about the hand-eye coordination because i guess in not not a million miles away from your line of work there were, mm. there are people flying drones and things now where i guess yeah. that's really useful um, yeah uh, definitely and so here's an interesting little um nugget perhaps about connectivity and, and the, the student cohort i was up in uh, in north yorkshire a couple of weeks back doing uh, a bit of helping out on a, a survival course that's run up there purely for uh, aviation students and um hello square if you're listening and we were up there <laughs> i know square Right, well, so, so me and Square are in the woods, and we've got a load of students that we're bringing back down for the, the, the bus at the very end. So they've all done well. They've all 
um, being in the woods for a week, um, living with not much around them. They're wearing flying kit. They're all brand new baby aircraft out the box. And one of the things, and some of them were um, what I would call RPAS, but, you know, like um, unmanned aerial vehicle uh, operators. Part of their training, they have to learn to fly so that in an aeroplane so that they can then control a flying machine remotely. It's, it kind of makes sense when you think about it, but it's not intuitive initially. So these are the kind of guys that we're talking about who've got immense hand-eye coordination on that kind of digital medium. Um, and they've spent a week in the woods for the first time. So we're actually now looking at this precise group of individuals. And I was just walking behind them. I was like the last guy out the woods, making sure nothing got left behind. You know, you do that kind of sweep to make sure there's no um, any unexpected litter that's fallen out of anyone's pocket. So you, yeah. look, you leave it as you find it. Yep. And uh, I was just listening to these lads as they're walking towards the bus, which is still a couple of miles away. And one of their topics of discussion was phantom text messages. And I was intrigued. I'm like, I wonder what that is. And it, ter it turns out that these lads, who are much more digitally connected than me and you ever will be, even though we're chatting by Skype now, mm. they were getting phantom vibrations in their flying suit pockets where their mobile phone normally is. Just like people have had limbs amputated, talk about itching toes from a limb that's no longer there. They were getting these text messages in the woods from phones that weren't there. Huh. And I was like, that's, that's awesome. I've never heard of that. That's fascinating. So, so just thinking they've got the vibration when there's none there at all. Yeah. 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 They're so used to being connected 24 hours a day, even if they're in the flying coveralls, you know, that they, they wear to go into the aeroplane. They're, yeah, they're expecting to get text messages. And right. then and they were patting themselves, they said, because they, they thought, oh, let's see who that is. And obviously there's nothing there. Nothing like, there. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Interesting. But did they, did they enjoy the training? Did they... Well, obviously they're going to say yes to me in Square. <laughs> Square's quite... A, I've never actually met you in person, John, so I don't quite know how big you are, but Square's quite a big lad, isn't he? So you... Yeah, he is, yeah. So, uh, uh, I don't know, actually. I've never really stood next to him properly. And, yeah. You know, yeah, you know, I'm about six foot and right. uh, used to play a lot of rugby, but yeah, yeah. you see that shift south, doesn't it, as you get older? But, yeah, yes. he, we, the, the students, they... It's funny because when you're habituated almost to the outdoors like, like we are and a lot of your listeners will be, a lot of the things that we would take for granted are brand new experiences for, for these guys, which is great. you know. And, and, and of course, if you're experiencing something for the first time, you're giving it 100% attention. So I think the time went slower for them because they're attending to everything visually and mentally. But equally, they they seemed they seemed to have a, a real deep appreciation for the amount of um, learning that had genuinely gone on because it's all new, everything's new. So they're almost overloaded initially, and they, there is a genuine look of like rabbits in the headlights, fear in the eyes for the first day or two. But normally around the Wednesday mark, so the classic sort of John Leach, thirty six ish hours in, uh, up to you know your seventy two hour point, that they, they then start to own the woods as we would say and yeah they they did seem to uh, get a lot out of it enjoyment is normally hindsight isn't it when you do these sorts of things for the first time type two fun yeah exactly <laughs> so it's all rose tinted rear view mirror stuff but i think if you ask them now yeah it, it would be good and certainly some of the other uh, courses that i've been lucky enough to, to work on with with foreign seer schools they'll yeah the students uh, tend to be less less reserved than we are in the UK. And they'll often say, that was amazing. You know, it's the most incredible thing I've ever done. Um, which is perhaps what our guys feel, but they would never say that in front of no. us. All no. No. Yeah. That's, in that's interesting. That's interesting. In the time that you've been involved, and I'll yeah. probably jump around my questions here a bit, John, no, so apologies, fine, but in the time that you've been involved in survival training, because you have been involved in survival training for quite a while, yeah. to the extent that you can talk about it, is there anything significantly changed in 
what you deliver or how you deliver it in terms of like the core survival skills i'm not talking about the the stuff we can't talk about but just the, yeah. the kind of in the woods stuff yeah the, there's been changes through all of it definitely um i think the the biggest change in the last 20 years has probably been the um the kind of improvement in how we find people so with the stuff that we look at there's a, an, uh, an acronym that you, you will have heard, protection, location, water, food. And then when you're talking about um, personnel recovery, so that the finding of people, be that peacetime or wartime, you go down a, a, um, a process which is summarized, bullet pointed in the, in the tasks of report, locate, support, recover, reintegrate. And when you break that out, SEER or survival only really happens during the support phase. You know, that, that's kind of for the individual, they're, they're sort of doing that, um, but they need to know how to facilitate their own recovery at the far end. The most important thing that we can teach them, if they can protect themselves from the environment, is the next phase, which would be protection location in old money, but it's now known as report locate in the long end version of, of personal recovery. So report locate can be anything you could imagine as a way of shouting for help or whispering for help, depending on your, your scenario. And the technology around that is the bit that's improved the chances of an isolated person the most. Mm. So if you think back to the late 90s and you're looking at low Earth orbit satellites who are listening out on international distress frequencies like uh, 121.5 megahertz, then you're relying on a couple of cuts from a low Earth orbit satellite to finesse that guy's position or girl's position. And generally speaking, that would have been using a, a Doppler um, way of identifying the, the beacon so you've got an ellipse that's possibly 80 by 30 nautical miles so that's still a huge area of wilderness even mm. if you get one, one cut and these cuts can be as far as 90 minutes apart so if someone's injured and, and down in the in the middle of nowhere you're looking at potentially three hours which as we as you know from any old first aid stuff you could be long since departed in that three hours yes. window yes so based on a 1990 late sort of mid to late 90s context of a 1215 shout going out and a low Earth orbit satellite trying to find someone, to now, when we're looking at 406 megahertz, and you've got the Cospas Sarsat constellations that are up there at MEO and um, at sort of geostationary levels, you can almost immediately, because it's got an embedded GPS um, uh, location with it, almost immediately know exactly who and where the isolated person is. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's phenomenal. When you think about the leaps ahead from what are our services were trying to um, achieve back in the in the, the 40s, 50s, and 60s how to find someone. Now, if they've got the right little box in their pocket and they know how to press, or indeed a lot of them are automatically activated on on G-force or, or kind of you know the rigors of ejection, if you like, then while bef while they're under the parachute before they've even descended into an austere environment, rescue forces can almost be airborne on their way to meet them. And mm. I think that's the biggest the biggest change because. Whilst there's an element of comfort for the people who've got that kit, there's still a degree of responsibility on the individual who's carrying it to know exactly how to use it and exactly how to employ it. So we spend a lot of time focusing on those skills, the report locate skills, to make sure that an individual, whoever they are and whatever they're doing, if they get isolated in the sea or on land in any, any climate, can optimize their chances of a speedy recovery. And you kind of do that in parallel now with the protection stuff of first aid clothing, um, 
shelter building and fire if you've got the luxury of that you know if you can get that signal out nice and early then you almost don't need to worry as much about the other stuff yeah so it shortens the window where you're having to apply the protection stuff whereas before it was like there's no way you were going to be rescued before you had to put the protection stuff in place and therefore that was the top priority yeah and it still is you know it still is the top priority but we say is absolutely right um because equally whilst we know the kits better these days on the report locate piece there could be any reason, uh, any number of reasons, sorry, as to why a rescue effort could be delayed. So mm-hmm. you can't take it for granted that the weather's going to be fine, that people can get to you quickly enough. Um, but you know at the back of your mind, I think, the morale aspect that people, A, people are definitely going to be coming to get you as soon as they can, uh, and B, that it's a fairly well-oiled machine. You know, it's not it's not too rickety. It's, it's, it's very um, high possi- probability of success if you do the right things yourself. Yes, yeah. And that morale piece is an important one i think whether you know it's not just military is it it's it's just the same and maybe even more important for civilians that if they are stranded that they know that somebody's going to come looking for them and just letting somebody know where you're going i remember i I worked with chris smart quite a few years ago on on the form that he was putting together um the pop form yes yeah Yeah. and smarty um we worked together for a long time at the school where i am before before he moved overseas um the pop form is based on a, a military piece of uh, paperwork, but the the idea is is fundamentally just giving you the best chance of being found early, and it's preloading the risk. The re- what was what we call it recovery forces or rescue, probably rescue in, in for our conversation. But you preload the rescue services with the right information to know where to look and when to start looking, so you're not dependent like you hear in the newspapers from the, the horror stories of, oh, he's been missing for three weeks and someone has decided to notice that, you know, the milk's stacking up outside the house. <laughs> yeah, there's the mail house. there's mail sticking out <laughs> the mailbox. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so you, you've got this kind of uh, proactive approach now where if there's an overdue time and it's not met, then yes, we're going to start. Because it's better to call off the search after someone's turned up than to start it too late and not be in time. Yes. So yeah, the hot form that Smarty generated is brilliant. And it's, it's, the, it's the same kind of principle that... Um, we employ for my day job in making sure that rescue activity is concurrent, the planning and the preparation is concurrent to any kind of operational necessity, but equally without straying too far into that world, that if people in, uh, are out walking, camping, hiking, that kind of thing, if they can employ, like you said, the mindset, and it's not difficult, if you can preload your brain with the right stuff, and even these days preload your phone with the right numbers, then that, that helps you out as well. So here's, here's one for you, Paul, right? So mm-hmm. this is something that um, I've picked up on over the last few years. Who have you heard from your uh, student cohorts from the examples that you hear? Who, who do people phone if bad things happen in, in the guys you've spoken to? Uh, in terms of who to get help, you mean? Yeah, yeah. So like, you know, to quote Bill Murray, like who are you going to call? When, when you speak to your students, do they know who to call or do they have a, genu- a general sort of um, blank look? Uh, they have a bit of a brown blank look so a lot of people don't realize if you want mountain rescue you need to call the police um yeah. that that's something that people don't realize um in in terms of leaving if you mean in terms of who who they want yeah. as their as their point of contact people often put well the funny thing i see okay a couple of things yeah. i'll comment on. the yeah. funny so we yeah. always ask students for um, emergency contacts when they come and do yeah. a course or a trip with us but the yeah. number of people who give numbers of other people who are on the course with them is <laughs> brilliant yeah 
is quite amusing. <laughs> and so it's like, again, people are not thinking about it in the right way. It's like, no, we need to have some contact of like your wife or your dad or your yeah. mum or somebody that we can get hold of that isn't on site, that isn't, yeah. you know, isn't with us. And so, yeah, just even that people are not thinking about it straight um people often do though if if you look at who they list as someone to contact or and i suspect they might be the first people they would contact themselves if there was a problem yeah. it often is it's either you know partner or yeah. or mum uh, yeah definitely yeah yeah same with us and yeah. it's it's funny isn't it but then you can kind of understand it because technology is brilliant and i am not a luddite i hasten to add i, I think technology is brilliant and it definitely shapes what i deliver in my, my training packages but we do have a dependence on some elements of it, even to the point where now that if you asked people what phone numbers they could remember, they probably would only remember about two or three. Yeah. Whereas you used to know all your mates' numbers and, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm harking back again. I'm going to sound like a real sad over here. But, um, so in my world, and time and again, we hear different versions of the same story, whether it's somebody um, ejecting out of a, uh, a fighter jet over Libya or someone who's canoes capsized, you know, in inshore waters around the UK, people always phone their dads. And they they know they phone that number because they know it, um, and they can remember it. And they phone it because they, you know, it's kind of who you're going to call. Oh, someone will look after me. And this is the bit that I was getting to, I suppose, in a kind of a circular way. If you can preload your brain with the right ideas, and like you've said, phoning the police to get hold of Matt and rescue or Coast Guard, or if you're abroad, that not always working, but phoning one one two. That's the kind of simple hack you can have in your head regardless of where you are or a little bit of pre-planning if you're going somewhere a little bit more austere to um to short circuit that and you you're going to get rescued more quickly and the best part is you're not going to stress your parents out <laughs> no <laughs> oh dad it's the middle of the night but i've fallen down a crevasse yeah um, what do you want me to do about it yeah <laughs> yeah no you're right it's because that's all all that that's just going to stress them out absolutely absolutely yeah. although that said i think yeah. if if you if you want somebody to make sure that if you're not uh, yeah. back from somewhere, <laughs> yeah, like if, if I have to tell one person that, you know, yeah. if I'm not back by so-and-so, please yeah. alert Thunderbirds or what have you, yeah. the person yeah. I most trust to do that is my mum. Yeah, fair one. Be because and that's the person going to follow through, yeah. Yeah, whereas yeah. some random bloke in a motel or something yeah. where I was staying last might yeah. not do that for me. No, that's true. When you're preloading someone with any with a uh, kind of an ETA or uh, an overdue thing, definitely someone who actually cares. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you're right, knowing who to call and you know a lot of people don't know emergency numbers overseas as you say and you know all those sorts of things. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's important. Um you know one of the one of the first things I do on overseas trips where we we have a sat phone with us is yeah. I actually sit all the the, the people down and show them how to use a sat phone because yeah. there might be I might be injured I might be incapacitated mm -hmm. and most yeah. people have never used a sat phone before and they they don't yeah. know how to use them they don't know yeah. how to make a call out on them yeah and we do the same mate so yeah. the first brief that the uh, instructors give to their students in the jungle is we normally carry quite a few layers of comms as you can imagine mm -hmm. but it'll be right here's the sat phone here's how it works you'll need to and different places lend themselves better to satcom so if you're in a clearing you've normally got about a 10 minute window as the satellite transits through the open kind of cone above you um, but we also have the other layers of comms like the radios and we show them how to set that up and it's the first thing they get shown mm -hmm. you know well wrong second first 80 stuff like how to make this into a stretcher but yeah that's the same for us and it's surprising isn't it the, the people who 
haven't yet really thought about that element of it. They they don't really think of the worst a lot of the time. And there's nothing nothing wrong with optimism, but you do have to address that, I think. Mm, absolutely, absolutely. Um, you mentioned the word optimism there. I'll I'll jump yeah. on that. I mean, clearly, you know, there's there's plenty of literature out there about survival situations um, yeah. where people have through the power of just seemingly through just being positive mm. um got through things where other people haven't or maybe wouldn't yep. um john leach talks about the won't to live as opposed yep. to the will to live and uh, you know again about the power of of your of your mental attitude yep. but also clearly you need to be realistic about the situation yep. so so how does one reconcile the need to be realistic with the need to be ridiculously positive in those situations that's a Mate, that is a brilliant way of, of capturing what I've been thinking about for a while now. So I'm, I'm a big fan of John's, and I work with John Leach a lot on um, training our new instructors in a lesson that we deliver called Survival Psychology. Um, so I'm a huge respect for, for the work John's done in mapping out the, the arc of any event psychologically. And his Won't to Live paper, if your listeners haven't read it yet, is phenomenal. Mm. He's also just brought a, a new one out within the last few months about give up itis, um, which is equally brilliant because it explains in some detail that the uh, the dopamine pathways involved in that degeneration when people stop um, stop trying to survive and what happens in those normally prison camp or concentration camp contexts where people will lose lose the will to carry on and and just sort of gradually die and it happens in lifeboats as well I suppose less so these days but it still it still can happen and that shutdown normally takes about three days and that's all cutting edge John Leach stuff. And when I was doing a bit of thinking over the last few years about this precise question, I, I started to look into other um, psychological sources as well. And there's a the phrase that gets used quite a lot um, called just, just known as learned helplessness, which stems largely from the 70s and uh, late 60s with some experimental psychology work that was done over in the States. And I was looking at that and I thought, well, you know, learned helplessness, which has been scientifically and laboratory proven using some means that I wouldn't want to do because I've got a dog and I don't think administering electric shocks to pets is quite nice, but you know, yeah. ethics changed in psychology. But what they, what they managed to prove with these experiments was that if you feel in a position that, in which that you're suffering, so the first thing is it's about suffering, which if you're not an outdoorsy person and you don't want to be uh, in the woods, then you probably are suffering if you get projected into it through misadventure, through, through whatever means. So if, you, if you're suffering, what they discovered with this learned helplessness study is that that, that suffering is born from, uh, that hopelessness, I beg your pardon, is born from suffering that you think you have no control over it. So if you're suffering anywhere and you don't think you can influence that, then you become helpless and, and hope evaporates. So I was looking at that and I thought, well, that's, that's all well and good. And a lot of it's to do with kind of prisoner contexts. But we can turn that around. And I started playing with that idea a little bit a couple of years ago. So my take on this, and this is just John Hudson, survival instructor. I'm not a, a doctor of psychology or any of that kind of good stuff. But if there's anyone in your uh, listenership who is, I'd love to know if they could experimentize this thought and, and take it further. So if, if hopelessness is born of suffering that you cannot control, then what if you can control your suffering? And the study found that the animals in that situation didn't get this learned helplessness. And I thought, well, you can play with this further because I've been watching survival students now for the best part of 20 years. And I've done some stuff myself where I've had to push myself harder than I thought I could. Mm -hmm. What I've noticed and the pattern that I've kind of identified is that 
if you could control your suffering by any amount, then your little candle of hope will carry on burning. If your little hope candle continues to burn, then you can start to plan. And if you can match your capabilities and your skills in the kind of bushcraft survival overlap Venn diagram bit, if you can match your skills to the task, then that's a trigger to do something to work. Now, if you work and you can control your suffering, then your hope is once again kindled. So your plan adapts, you carry on working, your hope keeps going. And it forms a kind of a positive feedback loop, a triangle, what I've kind of called a survival triangle in my own mind. And I think of it more of a, as a kind of a, a perseverance engine. So if I can do something to change my environment, even if that's a tiny amount, then I'll maintain hope, then I can plan to do the next thing and I can work on that and then hope kickstarts again, again, again. So one of the best examples from the SEER world is uh, an American aviator called Lance Sijon, who was shot down over the, the Loatian jungle in the 60s. He essentially did this, with you know, this process, but instead of um, one foot in front of the other, he had a broken leg, he had a broken arm, and he had a, a, a fractured skull. And he evaded by pushing on his back with one heel through the jungle across limestone, limestone floor of the, this cast tropical forest for 43 days. Wow. So it's, yeah, outrageous perseverance and determination. And he's rightfully got a statue of him in the US Air Force Academy because he's like this best example ever of determination and, and perseverance. The key thing, I think, though, that answers your question more fully, Paul, that's to do with um, that positivity and that optimism is you have to have that hope, that optimism, but it has to be realistic. Now, another prisoner... Um, of the North Vietnamese in the 60s and 70s is a, an American U.S. Navy aviator called Admiral Jim Stockdale. And Jim was, uh, he's passed away now, but he was a student of stoicism in the, in the truest sense. So mm. uh, it's now a byword for... So Marcus Aurelius type stoicism. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So Marcus Aurelius was one of the uh, books that he would, the meditations that was one of the things he read, but he also read a book by uh, a, an earlier philosopher called Epictetus, mm -hmm. which is called the Enchiridon. And that's... Uh, ancient language for a handbook and it's a sim it's simply saying that you are in charge of how you perceive things and if you can perceive them in a positive way so this is a, a massive over oversimplification of a, an entire philosophy but if you can uh, perceive things in a positive way and realize which bits you can control and which bits you can't then you're in a good place and that's what Lance Sijon did and that's what Jim Stockdale did when he was in the Hanoi Hilton for five years. I was going to say Stockdale was one of the Hanoi Hilton yeah. guys, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah mate. Was he, he was, one of the most senior guys there? He was the most senior yeah. prisoner. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. The, the, the other part to his observations from his time in the Hanoi Hilton, and for some of that he was in solitary, and I think for six months of solitary there was a single bulb light bulb on in his cell. You know, this is mental deprivation beyond the imagination of us mere mortals. But what he discovered back to the initial question about optimism, is that some of the people who didn't survive were optimists, but they were optimists who weren't realistic, which kind of answers your question. And right. it was identified by an author, I think an author called Jim Collins in the 90s or 80s, as the Stockdale paradox. So if you're optimistic and there's absolutely no basis for that optimism, then you're going to be disappointed eventually. And if you're disappointed in an arena like the Hanoi Hilton, where there's not a lot you can do about it, that could trigger the give up itis that John Leach talks about. So realistic optimism is key. And the way to identify a realistic optimism, in my mind at least, is to match your skills to the environment. And it doesn't take a huge amount of skill necessarily to be able to affect your environment enough to change it. 
So I'm not talking now about us teaching people to be bushcraft ninjas and, and certainly not high finesse skills like fire by friction. But if we equip our aviators with the right amount of, uh, of skill and a small uh, little tool bag of kit, they can certainly light a fire in the rain. Mm-hmm. They've then got a degree of hope of sustaining their effort, and that will then kickstart that perseverance engine. So I've spoken for quite a long time now, mate. Sorry about this, but it kind of works its way round to answering the question about realism, um, optimism, and perseverance, because all of it is required, but it has to be in the right balance. And like so many things, like the fire triangle in survival, it has to be an equilateral triangle that will yes. support its own weight. Has yeah. to be in proportion, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, don't don't be concerned about talking at a great length. And um, <laughs> there's a there's a ton of things. You know, like my 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 kind of geek radar is on now. And um, <laughs> so you mentioned Jim Collins. Is that the same Jim Collins? Is written sort of business books and yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, I'll have to. I, I'm not aware of that work that, that uh, regarding Stockdale. So I have to dig that up so, as well. So. I'll send you a link, mate. That you might you might be able to put in the show notes. I don't know, yeah. but. Stockdale's, um, he did a couple of lectures for the US Navy Academy. Mm-hmm. And second lecture, I think it's called Master of My Fate. And it's Jim Stockdale and Stoicism, but it's brilliant. Mm. It, it's all about that kind of stuff. Um, but it was geared at people who were going to, like we were chatting about a while ago, be kind of involuntary practitioners of um, these skills. So uh, it's definitely got value for the bushcraft guys in your audience, but equally for anyone who may find themselves in an unusual or uncomfortable situation. And the whole point with going out into the woods is to stretch yourself a little bit and expand your comfort zone. So at times we'll all cross that um, comfort zone line, I think, and go into stretch a bit. So it, it has got utility regardless of what you're doing, but the kind of it's written for um, US Navy aviators, mm. but it's, good it's good no it sounds good sounds good after and i'll definitely as much as possible of all of this stuff that we talk about and if there's any links you know john mm. john leach's papers all those sorts oh, of things yeah. I, I will yeah. do my best to link to all of them in the show notes so people can people can uh, find those all in one spot so yeah any any extra links you can provide john that'll be super no, yeah, useful for everyone um <laughs> now <laughs> have you done a podcast with john paul have you spoken i haven't no i've done one with sarita who, oh she's brilliant yeah yeah um, but i haven't done one with john no that would be good to do one with john actually so yeah yeah so if you can put a good word in for me and we'll do mate. yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> super thank you thank you no um i had a question there what was it it was to do with no i'll come back to that i'll come back to that actually okay. so you mentioned uh, just again. There's, I've made a ton of notes here, so I'm just going to jump back rather than kind of moving on. So yeah, yeah. you mentioned you mentioned the protection location bit. Now, yes. the, the way I was taught it years ago, and so again, this is about how things change. I was taught the old um, kind of protection location acquisition navigation yeah. kind yeah. of. So you've you guys have replaced that now with a with a protection location water food, which seems so sim- simpler. It's, it's, well, it's the, it's the same thing. So yeah. plan is the, the easiest one to remember, mm. bar none, right? So I, I use plan a lot when I'm talking about it, especially when I'm talking to non-military people, I say plan. Mm-hmm. But when we uh, work with just the military students at the school, it's protection, location, water, food. And they kind of remember it as a mantra if you say it often enough. Navigation is important, but it's sort of taken as read that most of our guys can navigate. Yeah. So the layer that we'll add on will be the, the Tristan Gooley realm where um, 
we we tend to focus just on the really big handful of survival navigation, but we've worked with Tristan as well. So most of our instructors now are kind of reasonably competent natural navigators in the Tristan mold. Yep. Um, but they'll only ever really pass on, I don't know, less than 10% of that kind of stuff. It's really, really basic level things for people who should have the right equipment, should have a few layers of that on their person, but might need to use it um, for real. And there's, we have had feedback that even people who've not been trained in natural navigation, as, as me and you would call it, have managed to work that out just from a little bit of knowledge. We, we know of very recent cases um, over in the sort of Middle East area of people who've managed to get their way back to friendly people just by noticing which direction olive trees have grown. So there are, you know, by moving at night, obviously. So mm -hmm. there are applications for all of that stuff within the seer world. Um, it's, it's just that we tend to say protection water food rather than plant. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. And the the other acronym that gets or, or has been banded around a lot in the past is is stop. Do you? Do you oh yeah, yeah. Is that something you still think is relevant? Some people argue it's too simplistic in terms of just you know dealing with let's not say a survival situation, but just dealing with a difficult situation in the right. outdoors. I don't know, mate. My personal background, having had to. Uh, learn lots and lots of abstract checklists to kind of turn yeah. on an engine. Yes. I, I hate them. I yeah. really hate acronyms. So um, I've never personally gravitated towards things like STOP or, or where we, we – I, I prefer to kind of unpack the idea, mm -hmm. give the guys an understanding of why they're doing something so that they can be more flexible in their thinking rather than more um, A, B, C, D, E. Because yes. sometimes you need to put D before B if the, if the opportunity presents Absolutely. itself. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I'm a bit – sort of sit on your pack have a condor moment and probably make a cup of tea yeah well that's just that's that's the stop bit isn't it that's the s of stop and then it's what you yeah. do after that that's that's yeah exactly that's important but, yeah yeah um are you familiar with um andre francois bourbeau's work the quebec uh professor no i'm not is okay. he dr popsicle i don't know if he's called dr popsicle guy who i oh, so to answer the question quickly so <laughs> To interrupt you, there's a guy who um, I was put onto by my friends at the Canadian Seer School when I was working with them, and they mentioned his name, but I didn't log it. I just remember Doctor Popsicle. Is he? So is it kind of hypothermia that he specialises in, or is it something else? No, it's not specifically hypo okay. hypo hypothermia. But he has this he has this framework um, for dealing with situations in the outdoors that he calls a. Um, he has this acronym S E R A, and I, I can send you some details okay. of it actually. Yeah, but cool. it's it's a much more flexible approach, and it's to right. do with balancing risks and your resources. I think it goes back to what you were saying before about having where your skills meet the meet the environment, and it's yeah. it's done in a more flexible way. It's a less rigid approach. It still covers the same things as, as mm. say stop. I'll send you a few bits because I wasn't fully familiar with his work, and as this bushcraft symposium, I was just at he was presenting there as one of the keynotes and he went through it in quite some detail so I'll, uh... okay that's good that's one of the brilliant things about these symposia though isn't yeah. it you know you, you get this cross-pollination of ideas and it's just like um you know darwinism you get this origin of one idea and it'll the meme will like cross-pollinate with another one you get a far better more robust product at the end of it indeed you do so the other question i was going to come on to john go yes. going back to where you were talking about um 
people using their skills, meeting the environment. And you, you, we went through that conversation with uh, regarding Stockdale, etc. I guess for a, I guess for a fast jet pilot, it's fairly obvious when they're in a survival situation. It's after they've ejected. You know, it's kind of a fairly binary thing, isn't it? In that sense, yeah, yeah. when you're when you're training people in survival more generally, do you do you say? So what I'm trying to get at is it seems to me that when a lot when most people get into a survival situation unless it's a rapid state change like ejecting from a you know from a urophyte oh. or something it's a series of things that go wrong or there's a descent into that situation and it can be almost like you know imperceptible certain things you know somebody gets wet they you, you know they didn't pack yeah. enough food or you know it's a slow accumulation of a number of factors that doesn't necessarily shout survival situation as they start to occur in the same very clear sense that you know crashing a, a, an aircraft or ejecting might do do you couch it as a survival situation in terms of your training. Yeah. What, what I'm getting at as well is that you read accounts where people don't necessarily, I mean, I'm thinking of one particular account in a book by um, Lawrence Gonzalez, um, yeah. Deep yeah. Survival, where yeah. he talks about this guy who doesn't light a fire because he was a, fi he was a, he was a fireman and right. he's in a national park where fires aren't allowed. Yeah, yeah. And so, and, until, <laughs> and, 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 and until he recognizes the fact that he's in a survival situation he doesn't break the rules which is yeah. so that's kind of what's at the core of my question is that you oh, know yeah. do you how do you couch the training in terms of the situations where they become uh, you know relevant so that people yeah. apply them properly it's a, it's a long-winded question but i wanted to try and sort of bring in why i was thinking because clearly if you're ejecting from a euro you know euro fighter or crashing a helicopter it's clear that you're into a survival situation yeah. but more generally, how do you couch that training? So the the disappointing answer is because of the amount of other training people have done to mitigate those risks and the amount of preparedness that's built into their work cycle. Because a lot of the guys we train are outdoors a lot of the time anyway, because mm. they're either on patrol on foot or they're you know they're going at reach in, in vehicles. They they are um, they've got layered protection from those elements and how they they know how they're supposed to behave and they've been it's been kind of instilled in them from day one to look out for each other to make sure that they recognize those sorts of things in each other mm -hmm. but but if the wheels were to fall off like you say it's kind of a um, a binary thing if it's an airplane mm -hmm. if it's a generally uh, bad situation that's deteriorating it's it's a balanced thing, really. You've got you're dependent on good leadership, recognizing that things aren't going well. But equally, we I would call it when I was flying, it's crew resource management. But it's it's that ability of members of the team to chime in with their concerns at the right time and not be shouted down. Because if someone's got concerns, like the end of any trip that I would go on when I was flying, anybody from the crew could say anything <clears throat> about flight safety. And it was equally valid and equally important. And if someone's got a concern, then it gets voiced and we all talk about it in the debrief. And it's that kind of continuous learning and that continuous improvement that may, makes that dialogue open. Now, it could be slightly different for other members of the services. It could be slightly different in different jobs. But there's still a, a format or a, a forum for discussing that stuff. Now, I'm not suggesting for a minute that a private on a patrol would chime in to the sergeant major and say, eh, sir, I think that was a bit, you know, mm. or, or without expecting to get it in the throat. But... 
people, when they've been out enough, they're experienced enough to recognize those kinds of situations you're describing. And there's that sixth sense that starts to chime in, which is born out of experience. On the other side, when we do um, work with, uh, and I've worked a little bit with uh, Shelterbox down the road, and their teams are constructed in a very similar way. You've got almost like a crew from an aircraft in a Land Rover or a, or a 4x4 who are going to some fairly austere parts of the world where the infrastructure is normally collapsed through a natural disaster. Mm-hmm. Then they may not be as attuned to that, and they're definitely not going to have that um, camaraderie where they've worked together for their entire adult career and know each other inside out. So the things that we would tell them to look out for if uh, somebody's personally struggling is just to monitor their behavior and watch their sense of humor as a, as a kind of canary in the mind. Mm. In terms of combat indicators, as I would know it, for an outdoor situation heading south, then that's a lot more difficult for them to uh, identify. And when we, we talk to them, we have to give them the longhand version. So there isn't a crash bang wallop, um, you know, the engine's on fire. It's a kind of, right, you've come down this track now, uh, the, the ground's getting boggier, and suddenly, for example, the vehicle's stuck. And whatever you do, you cannot you cannot dig it out. And that's when, we don't use the acronym STOP, but that's when we go back to what we were talking about a moment ago, where you need to know that if you carry on down the wrong road, it will get worse. What you need to do is just prioritize your events and your, your activities. And the, 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 the schema that we use for that it's just what will harm me first. And that's when we kick into the kind of the layered approach of survival priorities. And it's easier to explain it in the plan formats. People haven't got the military indoctrination behind them. But identifying it, I don't think there's a silver bullet to answer your question properly to tell people how to know when things have gone south. And certainly if you look at the um, some of the people who, who uh, have been taken captive, they don't often know that that's happened. They don't recognize for days even, that they're hostages, especially in places like Latin America, where we get, we'll get we get guest speakers come to talk to us at the school who've been taken by FARC, for example, mm-hmm. and they, they didn't know they were captured for about two or three days. So I don't believe if the people aren't experienced and aren't that well uh, versed in their own physiology and the, the, and the conditions that they're entering, that they wouldn't necessarily recommend it straight away. And that's the dangerous part, was if they don't recognize it and they're on their own, then there's nobody there to uh, interrupt a, 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 an inappropriate response. Yes. Yeah, well, that, that that's kind of, in a way, what I was hoping you were going to say, in the sense that <laughs> that is a very real possibility that it can kind of go under the radar, as it were, unless yeah. you're attuned to it. Does that inform how you train people at all in terms of how they think about difficult situations? I, I don't know if the um, recognition of a kind of an isolating incident occurring would inform their decisions necessarily in the sense we were just talking about but if we look at maybe some of the least experienced students that will get on the most basic training courses who aren't necessarily outdoorsy people at all but may in time of crisis have to look after people who are there with them then what i have noticed in that kind of growth model that we were talking about a little while ago is that whilst at the start of any training evolution it's all too much and it's a little bit of a, a ground rush moment rabbit in the headlights again mm-hmm. by the end of it because training the, the training we deliver is kind of it's not just cuffed you know it isn't a group of people in a room with a load of caffeine just making stuff up there's a bit of science goes into it and a bit of psychology mm-hmm. so it's a it's kind of crawl walk run and a gradual curve by the time they step off the top end of the training and dependence where they are as to how long that lasts but when they finish the training cycle they should be in a place where learning has occurred, they've grown personally, they've, they're confident that they've got a bit more self-reliance about them. And then, they, you know, because 
if they are going to be in a position of responsibility, they'll have to come back and do more. They're prepared for that next phase. So, yeah, it's it's the old adage of, you know, you, you climb the stairs one step at a time. We would never in this era push someone off the top board of a diving board to see how they got on. You know, no, we'd, no, it, no. it's not educational science, is it? No, it's not. It's not. So I think I, I've read in some other interviews you've given about how – very much that you don't push people in at the deep end and it is very much a a growth approach to education and and training and that might i guess that might take some people by surprise you know people outside of the military i guess often have a view of the military which is you know people think they're just getting beasted all the time and they might be surprised to hear that that the particularly at the survival end of the training which i guess some people might expect to be quite hard um, Mm. and testing that you do take that approach yeah, and I completely understand why that conception could be around, and mm. we'll probably get onto the kind of TV version of, of survival training in a, in a while. But there is a, a lot of stuff out there that's quite dated now, um, and things move on. You know, people, if you're uh, dehydrated or hypoglycemic, you will not learn. So even though we take people into the environment to get experiential learning done rather than just depending on them doing it through uh, through classroom-based stuff and learning from stories. We, we want them to have that um, autobiographical memory of it. We will um, feed them during the training phase. We will make sure definitely that they've got more than enough fluids to um, prevent them becoming dehydrated. So training is, there's a teaching phase, there's an adapting phase, and then there's a, a reviewing phase. And uh, the uh, adaptive applyment, applying phase is where they'll do most of their learning, but in order for us to present that information to them initially, then we, we have to make sure that they're in a good place, their brain's in a good place to absorb it. So you can't just thrash people up and down. They don't learn. No. What they learn? You know, cut me and I will bleed kind of thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, it's interesting because even the type of courses that I run, mm. it's not so much students who are coming on the course because they've read the course descriptions and they know what's, yeah. what's going to happen. But when you talk to people more generally, they're they're asking questions like oh are you living off the land for the whole week and i'm like no because it's a basic skills training course and if we were living off the land for the whole week that's all they'd be doing and they wouldn't really learn very much and that you'd still have to teach them what they were going to be foraging for beforehand and you'd have to feed them during that phase and then all they'd do is spend their time digging (laughs) up you know getting cattails and digging up burdock yeah. roots and things and they wouldn't have any time to learn bow drill or how yeah. to make cordage or anything so yeah there's this misconception that that's the best way to learn that you just sort of throw yourself into it and it's not is it no it isn't it really isn't but it pervades in common culture doesn't it that that's how things get done um and we, we do still get the odd person who would arrive at the school as a new instructor who has that misconception because sometimes guys will arrive who've not done anything yet themselves and that's part of the challenge for us as instructor mentors is to take somebody who's never done this sort of thing before but who's keen and to shift that mindset from um, what they reckon survival is all about to what it actually entails. Mm, mm. So how do you just you know mm. talk as much as you can or as little as you want to how do you recruit your instructors at your school where do they come from? We get them from all three um, arms of the services. Mm. So you've got um, and the Royal Marines who are part of the Royal Navy. So you mm. get all kinds of um, different people in the, in the you know different stages of their careers from all different ranks through from um, corporals, the, the lowest rank of an instructor at the school, through to officers who'll come and and uh, do some teaching work as well. And they 
are volunteers to a lesser or greater degree. So there are only certain career fields that will feed into the school, um, but there are some open places that can come from a range of different backgrounds and they get boarded. So whether that be the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, there'll be a kind of an internal uh, selection criteria, but it's not a kind of who can run over a mountain fast enough type of selection at all. It's mm-hmm. a look at who are the volunteers, what's their background, what's their track record if you like because everyone has an annual report and they'll depend how long they've been in there'll be a a trend analysis on that and you know there there are those people who like everything there there are those people who come here for the wrong reasons but they they don't tend to stay around for very long because you have to have a passion for this subject to advance through it otherwise you know who would want to be out in a forest in the rain if they weren't absolutely passionate about the subject i mean there's not that many people who would so they are very very largely volunteers with the odd exception um, and they come from absolutely everywhere, mate. We've had, um, like I say, people from an aviation background, obviously guys from a teeth arm infantry type background, um, some very cutting edge uh, elements of that. My friend Steve's a, a pathfinder. He's one of the best survival instructors you'll ever meet. Mm-hmm. And we've got submariners who've come through as well because we also teach sea survival training. You know, it's not been, it's been a while since there was a submariner at school, but, you know, because of the nature of UK forces and where they get deployed, it could literally be anywhere that they end up isolated from cold water to frozen sea through desert, Arctic and jungle in between. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, a little bit of everything. Yeah. Um, I've heard you say before that cold water is the hardest environment to survive in. I mean, oh, it is, yeah. what do you reckon? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm a, I'm a canoeist and yeah, it's, yeah. uh, I've had plenty of uh, experience of cold water. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, you you don't need very long. And I think one of the one of the things um, that takes people by surprise is, you know, I was working in the Lake District in in May, and yeah. you know we're on Windermere, and it's a mm. nice it's a nice sunny day, Ooh. but it's quite a big body of water. And if yeah. you're inexperienced, the water's mm. not warm at that time of year. The air temperature can be no. starting to get nice and pleasant and you'd be yeah. doing some activities you might not want to do on a less uh, pleasant day in, you know, sort of January or February or, or March even. But that's when people get caught out, isn't it? Because the, the water temperature isn't significantly warmer than it was several months before. And yet the air temperature is a lot higher and it, it lulls people into a false sense of security. Yeah, the Arctic char don't live in there by accident, do they? No, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's one of the few places they live outside the Arctic. Yeah. So it, the, the, the story that I was telling the reservists up um, on base on Wednesday, it's kind of the, you asked me when, when we, we started talking about how I got into this, but it, the question I like to, to explain to the guys who've not really brushed up against military survival before is how did the military get into this? Because you kind of think, well, surely there was a time where everyone knew these kinds of skills, and there probably was. So when we do a, um, a history of personal recovery type chat on one of the courses I teach on, we will talk about right back into the Napoleonic era. And because forces back then fought in big red squares or long, thin red lines, and the kind of largely came from a, a rural background. They knew how to live off the land. And equally, because of the nature of combat back then, they were far less likely to end up away from their mates uh, and to be stuck on the, the French side of the lines. It was very uncommon. Mm. And if they were on the wrong side of the lines, they were probably poachers. So they probably knew all about sneaking about and grabbing yeah. the rack on the way but home. They were. I mean, like, I, I remember I, I've read some... Mm things about the napoleonic war the mm. amount that they had to you know just re- yeah. reading about napoleon's army going off to fight the russians mm-hmm. they they were i mean one of the things the russians did was a kind of slash and burn 
policy where they deprived Napoleon's army of the resources yeah. on the ground, you know, in terms yeah. of, you know, agricultural resources and beer and all those things that they were yeah. looting effectively as they went through the countryside. Yeah, and that was how they fed themselves, wasn't it? Yeah. And the context that we uh, deliver where I work is is more to do with rather than a formed fighting unit and how that gets its, um, its administration and its supplies sorted out, it's to do with an individual who ends up disconnected from them procedurally or or, or otherwise um who has to then fend for themselves and that to get back to your cold water point and and sort of circle back around to that the reason why there is a survival school in the uk is because of the battle of britain and um, we had you know an island nation we're defending our shores against invasion the aviators were irreplaceable you can't train them fast enough to replace experienced pilots who are either in hurricanes, spitfires or whatever. And eight out of 10 of those guys who were shot down and parachuted into the English Channel were never seen again, mm. eight out of 10. So if you look at an 80% casualty rate over cold water, you start to think, well, how can we stop this happening? Um, and they eventually sorted it out. The, the, the battle is a completely different dip, but to look at air sea rescue, an integrated air sea rescue down on the South Coast, which eventually wrapped around the whole of the UK and then was extended into the Mediterranean theater and taken up by the Americans and taken to the Pacific and beyond, you're looking at, two things there's the fundamental problem of dropping a human into cold water and if the human happens to be wearing a business suit which is kind of the blue wool that pilots were wearing during the battle of britain then they're gonna gasp when they go into cold water as i'm sure any canoeist would would remember from learning to canoe yep. so you go into cold water you, it, you can't help yourself and when you go <gasps> you take in about two liters of air now if you're underwater because you've just done a parachute descent and you're taking two liters of of air, you're actually getting quite a lot of, um, of seawater and the mm -hmm. lethal dose is less than your lung capacity. And so couple the fact with the flotation devices at the time weren't brilliant and an unconscious casualty would actually float with their airway underwater. You then get to the point, well, how long can they survive for? Which goes back to your Lake District story of May and the Battle of Britain being fought through June, July and in August and into September. Even when it's at its warmest, you know, it's not going to be that hot compared to sort of the Med. You're looking at about 15, maybe 16 if you're lucky. And I, I'm a very bad surfer down here, so I know all about the, the cold water. <laughs> <laughs> if you're looking at the beginning of the battle when we were losing our most experienced pilots, the water temperature could be anywhere between 5 and 10. And if the sea temperature is 10 degrees, then your time to death, 50 percentile time to death, is around about the two-hour mark. Mm. Full unconscious before that, and your kit doesn't let you float with your head above the water or your nostrils above the water, then, you know, it happens a lot quicker. So what we did as a nation was we took best practice from the Germans who had actually developed an integrated air sea rescue service, had better kit. We started to give our air crew life rafts and a large amount of what we teach at the school is based around how to survive if you end up in the sea. And it's fundamentally dependent on having the right equipment because I don't care how much of a, a ninja anybody turns up at our place thinks they are at survival. If we were to take them and drop them in the wrong kit into the sea, they could not survive. It's impossible. Mm. Um, the, the countless anecdotes of people who've fallen off the back of cruise ships, turned their trousers into uh, improvised flotation aids, managed for ages, but you wouldn't be able to do that in cold water because no. physiology just, it doesn't happen. The one exception is the Icelandic fisherman that I know of yes. who is, who was in the sea for hours and the tests that were done on him were exhaustive and they didn't really bottom out why. The fact that he managed to crawl across across volcanic glass to get home afterwards is just unbelievable. You know, it's epic. The, the guy must, you know, I can't imagine how hard that must have been. 
But the, the vast majority, the 99 percentile human being, will not survive in cold water. And that's the biggest risk for our guys, especially when you start to look at the newer aeroplanes that are going to fly off aircraft carriers, because they've got to cross the stuff to get to where they're going anyway. Yes. He's so kind of the, and I, I know this is the wrong analogy, but the sea survival is the bedrock of what we do. <laughs> well, that makes sense. There's a lot of it around the planet. Yeah, and, yeah um, exactly. Yeah. And we're not very well adapted to surviving in it. Um, no, no, that's it. Yeah. The odd exception, but you kind of you hear about the exceptions in the classic media sense, but um, that's not the norm. No, no, no. And after after cold water, what would you say was the hardest land mm. um, environment to cope in? That's interesting, isn't it? And it does depend on time of year and mm-hmm. um, and weather. The the hardest place I've been to. And a caveat this with, you, let's assume that you've got the right equipment to start with. Otherwise, you know, if you plonk a naked human in some of these places, we're just it's just a, a question of how many hours, isn't it? Yeah. If you were, had the right equipment, but you didn't necessarily have enough knowledge, I think you'd struggle to survive very long in the, the proper Arctic when you go right, right up north. Mm-hmm. We did one um, a couple of years ago when I was... I was like honoured and lucky to be asked to teach with the Canadians up at their SEER school in Resolute Bay. And the um, I've said this a couple of times now, so forgive me if you've heard this before, Paul, but the, the temperatures were in the newspapers because it was colder than Mars. And we had like, it was minus 80 Fahrenheit, which I think comes out at like the mid minus 60s. And that was still air temperature. You posted a photo just recently yeah. on Instagram, didn't you, from that? Right, so that's, yep. that building, yeah, that's it, mate. That building is the refuge. And you go out and you do teaching and then you go back in. Because if you were to stay out, then if you're not adapted, and I don't mean like you've acclimatized, I mean if you've not learned the skills and you live there comfortably like the locals can, then you will die. Mm-hmm. Um, and we learned, and this is something that's, I think, close to both our hearts, we learned very um, quickly, and I learned very quickly, I should say, and we were learning from the local guys who were the Inuit rangers, who work for the Canadian military and spend their, their entire life, generations of them, living up there. So, you know, it's not the kind of place where you can do a, a Franklin and just turn up with your teapot and expect <laughs> to get away with it. Yeah, <laughs> cherry-pick the best best local practices, don't you? So for me, I reckon of all the places I've been lucky enough to go, that would that would be, for me, the one that would probably, where the environment would win fastest. What, what, what would yours be? Yeah, I'd agree. Cold outside of the tree line is is tough. It's a hard one because there's not a lot there, is there, other than the no. snow itself. And you've got to have the right clothing and kit. Yeah, I suppose you could add altitude to that and get a parallel, couldn't you? If you were high enough up in the mountains for all those all those to be true and you didn't have enough uh, oxygen, then yeah, that would probably be the, another layer of tough on top. Yeah, but that, yeah. You're not going to be there by accident, I don't think. No, no. Uh, but yeah it's a, it's, it's a good question that and it, it kind of gets kicked around quite a lot the one that i've heard people say often which i don't agree with is jungle because a lot of people think jungles are really really tricky but there are there are actually a petri dish for life jungles it's it's impossible to avoid this stuff that's true the, the, the amount of di- biodiversity there suggests yeah. that yeah. lots of things can live there <laughs> yeah they're more at risk from us i think than the other way around yeah, well, absolutely. The rate we're going these days. Um, yeah, I guess I guess the reason people might think jungles are hard is because they associate things that might bite them or sting them. Yeah, or, yeah. yeah. They're certainly psychologically challenging. Mm. I know, I know uh, guys who've kind of taken a few days to um, reboot the, the, the hardware when they get in there. But yeah, yeah. It, 
And there's, you know, there's some great military anecdotes that I'm sure you've, you've read and I'm sure most of your listeners have heard of, of people declining in jungles. And um, Freddie Spencer Chapman mm. uh, described that really eloquently in his Jungle is Neutral. And I think John Leach references that part of Freddie Spencer Chapman's book in one of his papers, actually, to sort of meta quote what we've been talking about. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, well, it's, it's a really good book if people haven't read it. The uh, Jungle, mm. definitely. Yeah. 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 Top of the list. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, you've been involved with TV, which I guess gives you quite a unique perspective in some ways because there are people who are involved in TV survival shows who maybe don't have a massive professional background in teaching survival skills and then there are people who clearly, like yourself, have a whole career in teaching survival, you know, often in the military that don't go anywhere near the TV stuff. So you've got yeah. kind of, uh, uh, you've had a sort of foot in both worlds, as it were. Yeah. Um, I'd be interested in your perspective on, you know, and you don't have to name names or, you know, because no, no, no. you know, there there's quite a lot of derogatory stuff about TV survival shows out there. Yeah. Is it purely for entertainment or is there some... Is there some educational value in some of those shows, do you think? That's a good question, mate. And it, I don't know whether there always is the intent uh, necessarily for anything other than education. Uh, sorry, entertainment. Mm. There you go, slip of the tongue. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know which side of the fence you sit on. You're very what? much about education, aren't you? And I'm sure that's the input yeah. that you would want to have into those shows. But I'm it just. So there's, there's a selfish and there's a there's a um, kind of altruistic angle to all of these things, I think. And I went into it knowing full well that it could end up being a massive bullet hole in my foot because you don't know how the editing process works. The first time you do anything new, and I, I definitely include TV in this, it, there's, there's a kind of a leap of faith. And if anyone who's done anything, whether it be public speaking through to, I don't know, writing a report, you don't know how it's going to be received. You don't know what all the criticism of it's going to be. So you kind of do it because you've got faith in what you're doing and you think you're doing the right thing. And that's where I started my sort of TV little little foray from. And it, it certainly was partly to do with um, trying to not reset any balances, but to put what I perceive to be a genuine and heartfelt and realistic approach to living in the outdoors by accident, you know, the survival part rather than the bushcraft part, mm-hmm. putting that across. Um, but equally, you know, it's an opportunity. I'm really lucky. My job's amazing. I, I get to go to some cool places and I get to meet some amazing people like the um, Inuit and like the Iban over in Borneo. Mm-hmm. Um, and you learn and you learn and you learn. But you kind of do that once a year maybe to each place. And I, want, I was just being like, the opportunity arose and I was like, well, I'd like to go and see some other places as well. And I'm certainly not going to be able to afford to go and do it myself on a, on a reservist salary. Mm. So why not? Um, if someone says, would you like to go and test your survival skills in uh, somewhere you've never been before and you probably couldn't even find on a map when they mention the kinds of places that they're going to go, but like, yeah, I'll have a bit of that. And mm. that's, where it, that's where it began. It was an email. Um, would you like to be involved in some survival TV? And they probably sent it to thousands of people. I don't doubt they did. And I just kind of went, yes. And I said, yes, enough times to enough different layers of, of difficult that eventually, before you realize it, you've passed through quite a lot of little needle eyes. And before you know it, you're getting um, flown off somewhere to do some telly stuff. And it's been brilliant. I've really enjoyed it. But in terms of where it falls on the education entertainment spectrum, the best, the best way of describing TV that I know of 
was described to me by a brilliant producer over in America called Scott. And um, Scott uh, is the uh, one of the execs at the production company where we, we shot uh, Survive That, which is known quite amusingly in America as Dude, You're Screwed. And what Scott said, what Scott said to me once, because he's brilliant, he, and he came um, out with us to Alaska and we filmed the pilot episode of that. Uh, and he said, John, he said, TV is just the stuff between the adverts. And I thought, <laughs> <laughs> I thought that is so true. So if you boil it, like, I like to play the game of asking why. If you ask why enough times, you'll normally get to like follow the money, the, the ground zero of what it's all about. Yeah. If you ask why about any of these shows, ultimately, there's somebody somewhere who's beholden to a shareholder. So actually, regardless of how many really, really um, – well-meaning and with 100% integrity, creative minds. And I've met some brilliant creative minds doing it who've got an amazing backstory of the things they've done, all kinds of shows and, and, and uh, from the, the TV camera guy uh, angle as well, some brilliant people. But ultimately, one of the questions that'll have to be answered for a program to be um, made in the first place is, is it profitable? And for a show to be profitable, it wouldn't be the kind of survival that we train people in the military to do because it's quite dull it's really all you're trying to do is prevent risk and without risk there is no drama and without drama there is no entertainment and entertainment sells so you kind of have to appreciate it from quite a few different angles and i know that's hard for some people because we, we did the um the screen testy i don't know if you call it that but whatever it was we did we shot this sizzler thing me terry shapper and a few others in in la back in like the early uh, teeny sort of 2011-12 era and it was brilliant fun, you know, got flown over to L.A., got some duty free for Christmas, came home, had an amazing uh, couple of days filming with some brilliant people, met cameramen and, and people like Tesla that I've kept in touch with. They were fantastic guys. Um, but some of the people who were there were like, well, this, this is all fake. So well, it's not fake. It's just TV stuff. You know, they're, they're putting a message across and they haven't got the luxury of hanging around for 72 hours. They've just got to get this together because they're going to send it off. And it's like doing a, a flyer for a gig. You know, the mm. flight is not the gig. It's just the, the promo material. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it, I think some shows, the ones I like and probably the ones you watch are far more educational than they are entertainment because mm. we kind of know quite a bit about this topic. You never stop learning, and that's why we'd watch them because there's always more to find out. Yeah. And they tend, to, for me at least, to be kind of the, the um, how people uh, will live in a, a kind of a first nation, wherever that is in the world type type way. I love finding out about cultures and how they live in the environment. And equally, documentary type things about how people have persevered through adversity, whether that's um, military aviators or whether it's anybody adventuring. I, I love those sorts of things. When it comes down to pure entertainment, I'm not I'm not a massive fan of the the, the deeply entertaining end of that spectrum because mm. it's, not, it's not me really. I just don't watch that kind of telly. With the exception of comedy shows because you know you've you got to love those and sometimes yes. it does cross over into comedy but yeah <laughs> <laughs> not mentioning any names no would we but yeah it's funny it's funny and the, the thing is you've got to appeal to uh, a fairly wide demographic for a show to get aired haven't you so you've yes. got to have broad appeal and as soon as something's got really broad appeal then it stops being niche and geeky and the kind of thing that me and you would nerd out on exactly stops. so the opposite of what we said yeah. before we came on 
you know to record this is it, you yeah. know the the the, the fo- you know for the listeners benefit one of yeah. the great things about these podcasts is that we're not trying to get it on radio 4 or a wide distribution <laughs> so we don't need to have that wide uh, wide attraction to the general yeah. public we just need to to cater something that is for the geeks is for the nerds who are going to ask similar questions who want to know more detail yeah. and i'm sure there's a bunch of people who want to know even more detail about what we've talked about and that that's the audience that we've got here but it's a very different audience to mainstream tv or radio production yeah exactly and there there are elements of all those shows if you watched like the right few minutes of any of these shows it would actually be really good telly i think the problem comes when you've seen quite a few of them and you almost get kind of fatigued to it don't you that kind of oh not another person trying this x or y y thing you know it's almost like you and that drives the sensational aspect of it because the producers are acutely aware of audience fatigue and they need to reinvigorate the format and find a new angle on the same stuff. And there's only only so many ways you can skin the cat. But what I would say about this whole telly stuff, mate, is it was an absolutely brilliant laugh making it. It was such good fun. Mm-hmm. So if anyone anyone ever gets that kind of knock on the door, don't be put off by any of this at all. I'm not I'm not slamming it in any respect. Oh, no. It's great fun. Doesn't yeah. come across that way. And you, 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 oh, cool. you worked with some really, really good people as well. I mean, who, who yeah. have you enjoyed working with? I mean, you worked with Matt Graham and you worked with... Yeah, yeah. We've been, I've been really lucky. We've yeah. had... Um, so the last one that I was working with, uh, working on, sorry, was with Ed Stafford. He was yeah. a really nice bloke. Um, and and that was, that could have been really difficult because they were shooting six different episodes and Matt um, was one of the episodes and I was the sixth person to, to, to shoot. And so you now you're meeting a team who are really well formed, really bonded. They've got their own shorthand, their own in jokes. They've got their own esprit de corps. There's a home team and a away team in, in, in uh, respect of the shooters who are going out with you and the support staff that they have to have. And then the, the thing that, that was brilliant about that was that they were all so welcoming you know you're entering a very close community that have worked and slept in the same footprint for yonks but they were really generous they were really accepting and they were just um, full of support and it was a very inclusive environment which i was bowled away by because mm. all brits there's a few aussies um, a couple of uh, other guys from singapore where they were based but they just um, were very welcoming and ed was very generous in his his kind of uh, support as well so it was that was a really nice one to shoot on and the bit i like most about that and this is um, not to go off on too many tangents but one of my guilty pleasures tv wise i quite like the show gold rush i don't know if you've ever seen it have you watched that i've seen some of it because one of my mates filmed on a series of it yeah yeah well, that, and that's what I was going to say. So the guys who were filming First Man Out were all Gold Rush people. So I just geeked out with them, asking about the Hoffmans and <laughs> what Dave Turin's really like. And then the, the camera guy I was with, Joe French, he's a mate. So Joe French is the sort of person you want to do a podcast with because he's shot on all sorts of shows, um, and including reality, in inverted commas, survival stuff. Mm. He's also a uh, mountain rescue guy based in Scotland who was on Everest when the avalanche happened and it was part of his team that were taken out by the avalanche. But um, so I was just geeking out with Joe and those guys because they've all filmed on Gold Rush. It was brilliant. It was just like proper fanboy moment. <laughs> and then you talk about the other other people that um, I was lucky enough to film with and the, the American guys, they were they were really cool as well. It's, and it, but it's a completely different vibe, isn't it? You're working um, in a different type of professional arena. You've got... a and it's very similar to my day job. You've got the, the Brit way of doing it and then the American way of doing it. Right. They're not wrong. They're just different. Different. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, and I think that's an important thing to remember uh, when you're working with other people. You get too fixed in your own way of seeing things sometimes, yeah, don't you? you do. You've got to be open-minded and flexible, mate. And um, the, the stuff we did with Matt and uh, Terry and, and Jake and another guy who you'd love chatting to is, is Tim, who runs a school up in um, in Maine, Tim Smith. So we, we shot um, different episodes of those guys in all sorts of different places. But it was the bit that the kind of feedback that we've had from people who watched it and what we know from having participated ourselves is it wasn't so much the survival stuff and to go back to your early question, the, the skills and the um, educational aspect of it, it was kind of the entertainment with that show of the esprit de corps and the camaraderie because we were just having a great laugh. But we genuinely cared about the guy who was out on the ground and it was a very similar situation to when we've got students who are out in the woods and you want to know how they're doing or one of our guys has gone away on a foreign seer schools course and you want to know how they've done. Mm -hmm. So we would get updated with these um, this image that's coming back to our command tent and just we were actually the first thing we were looking at is that guy's face to see how they were coping with the situation yeah it makes sense I've, I've not actually met tim but i have communicated with him um you know online yeah. um and, actually, and i was hoping he would be at the gbs but he, uh, this symposium i've just been at but he wasn't unfortunately so uh, yeah, hopefully i'll his, run into him at some other point yeah. yeah he's on his long course at the moment they do a semester long immersion program and i think he's into like the back end of a nine-week course at the moment yeah yeah. yeah but it was it's interesting that the some people were talking about one of those episodes with tim where he huh. he um yeah some of the i've not actually seen it but where he was yeah having to like did did he have was he in snow and he had to carry something ridiculous that's right yeah, yes yeah. It was, that was the um, in northern norway we filmed that and he had a coracle a unicycle because it was daft but it was fun because you get to see the different ways of uh, approaching stuff so you got that kind of um, that weird thing where everyone expects there to be a binary answer. You've got either you kind of your primitive primitive skills expert or your military expert. In inverted commas all the, the time. The, the old dual survival model. Exactly. Basically. Yeah. The, yeah. Your, your air quotation marks happening all the time while I'm talking to you now. So you <laughs> you could you could boil it down to this binary alternative, or actually, what really happens is everybody approaches things slightly differently and that was the bit about that show where scotty madden who's the producer what she was doing was trying to throw some really odd things into the mix just to see what kind of mental connections it made because that was all done in the moment none of that was at all scripted it's like right okay mate uh, you dropped off by helicopter here's your kit and you and we dropped tim off it was me and terry i think it was me and tezza who dropped him off and we got to see the footage later and he did not know that he was getting a unicycle so he looks under this coracle <laughs> he's surrounded by snow and there's a unicycle he's like well what are you gonna do and it, but it's that kind of challenge and i think that's why we enjoyed it so much because we'd done quite a lot of outdoorsy stuff you would never get that challenge in your day job i mean yeah. at what point am i gonna be handed that it wouldn't happen so it's things like that that really got you to think differently yeah. which is um it's part of the part of the 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 uh, principles of what I teach is the mindset and that flexibility. Yeah, so I guess there is a, there is an educational th there's a sort of meta educational thing going on there, which is yeah. teaching about mental flexibility and resourcefulness and improvisation, and then there's also the entertainment stuff <laughs> over the top. Yeah, yeah, and I was definitely personally growing and learning by having to do that kind of stuff, and I'm sure the other guys would say the same. Mm -hmm. well, I think they would. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it sounds like you had a lot of fun anyway. So Yeah, it was brilliant. Really good. And uh, friends for life. So still in touch with quite a few of the boys that we did that thing with. And uh, and they've all gone on to different stuff. Like Matt's, Matt's got a load of different telly stuff that he's done since. And he's 
he's like hugely uh, popular and, and known in the sort of southwestern desert area where he still does a quite a bit of stuff with Boulder Outdoor, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and lovely blokes, yeah. lovely blokes. Yeah, good stuff, good stuff. Mm. So, John, you're also yeah. going back to that um, photo you posted on Instagram recently, uh, being yeah. up in the uh, the Arctic tundra in northern Canada. Mm. You said you actually wrote a significant amount of your book when you were I, there in between yeah. other I, things. I did. I wrote the introduction, if I remember rightly. I'm sure it was the introduction, right. which apparently is supposed to do last, but no one ever told me how to write a book, so I just made it up as I went along. <laughs> well, I guess that's what you need to do with the book, isn't it? You need to make it up as yeah. you go along, in a sense. Yeah. So yeah. tell tell us more about your book, John, because it's, it's okay. brand new at the moment. It is. Yeah. So it's kind of what we've been talking about, really, mate. So it's when I looked at the the things that I've been involved with as a military survival instructor for the last, the best part of 20 years. And I look at the busy brains that the majority of people I talk to have when they're trying to operate complicated aircraft in hostile environments. The fact that they have to know some survival stuff is very much like buying an insurance policy. So they've got a, a completely full brain with the amount of things that are going on. And we ask them, we demand of them that they pay attention during a survival course and they remember some stuff for years and years to come that they may never need. It's really, really hard to, to try and um, to remember that kind of stuff unless it's as simple to remember as possible. And that's the aim, the goal, I suppose, with a, a survival instructor, with any survival instructor, a good one, is, is they'll want to know the best way to impart the knowledge to the student that potentially is going to save their life without it becoming a burden or too waffly. And there's a kind of a, there's a fork in the roads uh, with what I teach, because when I'm training the new instructors, I want them to get really passionate about it, to really geek out on the plants, to know how to light fires by friction. I want them to know all that. And when I was uh, temporarily acting as the, the school boss last year, I, I stopped PE on a Wednesday morning for the entire squadron. And I said, you are all coming with me down to the T-bar and we're all going to do fire by friction every Wednesday. <laughs> and all of, you, all of you are going to achieve this. And you're not allowed to comment on someone else's technique until your name's on that board. And I want a name and a date and a witness for when you got your first friction fire this term. Brilliant. So, you know, making people accountable and buying into those definitely bushcraft skills, but that provide a, an excellent vehicle for getting deeper knowledge into a survival instructor because as you've you you know inside out and your listeners are probably 100% au fait with in order to light a friction fire there is a shed load of other knowledge that must be acquired before you can even start rubbing sticks together because these these guys are going out and making bow drill sets from scratch some of them have never done it before mm-hmm. because they know all about 406 beacons and covert comms and evading capture in enemy territory but they don't often get time to practice the soft skills so i believe that bushcraft is a a really firm foundation for a lot of military survival stuff but in terms of what we teach to the student we could not expect a f-35 pilot to be a bushcraft expert pan globally no. i mean if, even if you asked the guys on telly who are bushcraft experts they'd probably hold their hands up and say no i i cannot know all the different bushcraft techniques around the world because it's actually impossible there's just too much of it absolutely i mean there's some widely applicable techniques i mean bow drill bow drill is one of the more widely applicable friction fire techniques because you've got that mechanical advantage and there's lots of different species that that work compared to say hand drill or fire plow or what have you 
but you still need to be able to identify particular species yeah. you need not just the wood but also what you're going to use as a as a tinder bundle to take the ember into flame and all that kind of stuff yeah. and there's there's a lot of knowledge there yeah. um but even so you know people often you know you, you have to be honest because people often say to me you know what would you use for this in the jungle and i'm like actually i don't know in this instance because i mm. haven't actually spent a lot of time in jungle and not all jungles are the same anyway exactly uh, there is no the jungle is that they're all different yeah, yeah. 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 Um, so, you know, I'm, I might have an idea for Northern Australia because I spent a bit of time mm -hmm. there, but, you know, put yeah. me in Indonesia. I don't know, yeah. frankly, off the top of my head, you know. Yeah, so. uh, who could? And there's yeah. that misconception we spoke about earlier that there's an assumption that as soon as somebody is given the moniker of expert, that they have to know. Well, no one's a true expert of any no. of this. I no. certainly wouldn't say I was an expert in this field. It's, it's a lifelong learning to scratch the surface. Yeah. I really don't like that term when people apply yeah. it to me, and I never apply it to myself. You know, yeah. it's just, it's, you know... It's common parlance now, though, isn't it? It's almost become the kind of um, the, the the name that's applied. If if anyone's going to engage with you online, you, you have to kind of Google it to find them. And it's like, well, they would never describe themselves as that. Yeah. No, no, you, you're you're absolutely right. You know, you've got to have that humility, and it is mm. it is a lifelong thing. I mean, there is so mm. much to know about nature and yeah. how you can apply those resources. And if you look at how detailed and nuanced any indigenous peoples mm -hmm. are in terms of their relationship with their local environment, you, mm -hmm. you realize that. And to think that you could develop even that relationship with an environment that's not your, your own, never mind multiple environments, is, yeah. is you know, yeah. a, a big ask. You know, it's, so. Yeah, it's, it's, it's almost um, an endless list as well because there's keep there'll always be more get the more you know the more you add to your list of things to learn about and it's almost um exponential so what what we have to do in military survival is um kind of get to the common denominators not the lowest common denominators but get back keep asking why like we were talking about a moment ago and boil things down to core principles and that's where the one or so mnemonics that we do use like plan or protection location water food where that overlay that we've come up with not me guys well before my time in Royal Air Force military circles, um, you can apply that anyway. You can apply protection, location, water, food to sea survival, Arctic survival, desert survival, jungle survival, combat survival, anywhere you can. You just have to know how to interpret that. And the easiest way, I think, to unpick it is to go, what will harm me first? Mm. In survival, what will kill me first? But what will harm me first? Cold water, right, okay, get out of it. How can I do that? Life raft or life preserver, good, what else? And you layer it on like that. And so to answer your original question about the kind of application of it and what I've been doing when I was doing my writing is, the, the, and you may have heard some of these kind of ideas when you were chatting to Sarita, but there's an enormous percentage and people always apply a different percent. And yeah, it, it's a movable feast, but there's a huge percentage of survival that's that's to do with your mindset and your your mental um, state. Otherwise, you can't start doing the right thing and then you won't survive. And I've heard it be 75, 8%, 90%, and it doesn't matter. It's a lot. It's a big chunk of it that's, that's to do with the psychological element. So you have to begin with the right mindset. You then have to know, like we spoke about earlier, that if you apply that template, it will change your situation. And if you can change your situation, you're, you can sustain hope. And if you can sustain hope, you can retweak your plan, matching your capabilities against the environment, and repeat. And that perseverance engine then fires in. You've ignited the engine. And as long as you keep doing it, it will keep working. Calories dependent. You know, you're going to waste away ultimately if you don't get rescued. But the goal in survival is to get rescued. And what I've been doing is kind of cross-mapping all those little fundamental elements onto the everyday because it's applicable in urban, it's applicable in the office. And especially when you look at some of the 
The other elements of uh, military survival that we haven't spoken about, the kind of poacher gamekeeper skills, some of those skills are really uh, applicable in the modern era when you're looking at people trying to predate you online or if you're trying to get an extra hour away from your desk at work. So I've kind of, I've kind of used the principles of military survival and the, the principles and the fundamental way of maintaining a positive mental outlook to apply that to pe- normal folk like me and you people's every day whether you work in an office or whether you work in a library or even if you work in the great outdoors no matter what you're doing you can apply it anywhere because it has to come from those first principles so that's that's the goal of my book and then this is kind of populist and it's a kind of a how-to hack but it's a it's hopefully i wouldn't say it's an educational book because i've written it in a fairly conversational style but i've tried to color the the kind of the key points with anecdotes so each chapter's got a, what i think to be a really cool survival story um, and then i kind of unpack what the guys or girls did and look at how they did it and then how we can apply it to everyday context hmm. sounds fascinating i'm looking forward to reading that john so. oh, mate, yeah well I'll, I'll get a copy over to you mate yeah thank you thank you thank you um how to survive is a simple yeah. title isn't it yeah it is so. yeah um and apparently books have to have a strap line underneath it now so it's lessons for everyday life from the extreme world oh. but it's how to survive yeah thanks yeah. for the pull i appreciate that no no worries um happy to happy to promote it i'm sure it's i've i've enough faith in you john as a professional <laughs> that it's going to be good quality having not oh, seen it <laughs> uh, I hope you when you've read it. I'll be interested to chat to you after. Yeah, no, that, well, let's do that. Let's do that. Um, possibly a sort of final question in terms of the, the meat of this conversation. Yeah. Um, are there any myths of survival or survival training that you wish you could just kill for good? Yeah, yeah. There's, there's a couple. There's a couple. So the main one, the most serious one really, is that there is a... A, a misapprehension amongst people who've never brushed up against the world I inhabit and the, the things you teach, that they're either going to be able to do it or they're not. And that is wrong. There is no such thing as a kind of a ready-made survivor. There's no such thing as someone who's born with that inherent ability. There is not. The fact that people get to the the age where they're listening to your podcast and are, are interested in it is proof that they've survived most of the hazards the world can throw at them. Um, <laughs> yes. So, so what I what I firmly believe, and this is backed up by science, so it's not just what John reckons, but um, your mind is malleable. You can learn to perform better in adversity, and I've seen countless times where that's been proven by guys that have been through our school and people who've fed back into that loop. Um, and a lot of the anecdotes in what I've written about uh, amplify that sentiment. So first, first and most important point is you can improve the way you respond to bad situations. You can, and it's stuff that you can learn. It doesn't take that much effort. You can do it through um, semantic memories where people tell you cool stories and that makes the information sticky or like what you and I teach where it's an episodic memory where you go and experience it in the context that it'll be tested in and makes it a truly autobiographical 360 memory. So you can, you can do that. Um, it doesn't take that much effort. So first, first and most important point, we can all perform better and it's mostly to do with preloading your brain with the right stuff. And then secondly, what I always get asked after people hear, like, when I, you know, I meet people who don't know what to do for a living, I say I'm a survival instructor, they normally ask, do you drink your own piss? And I say no, because it's the wrong thing to do. So that would be the other one. The slightly, slightly off, off, um, off tangent one is, no, survival, the myth to bust is it's probably not a good idea ever to drink your own wee. No, no, no. But that is, do you ever get asked that? 
Yeah, well, it's it's the, the usual thing. Do you sleep in a hedge? Do you eat worms? Do you drink your own pee? Yeah, it's those yeah. type of questions. Yeah. No. But yeah, the, the, the first one is the main one, mate. And then, yeah, the, normally people will back it up with that. Oh, yeah. do you drink? No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. It's one of those things that's just, yeah, it's just there, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So, John, I'm conscious of your of, of, of your time. Um, no, it's been a pleasure chatting to you, mate. No, it has you too. And <clears throat> like you said, like you said, it's it's something that we've been trying to do for quite some time. Where you know mm. you're, you're busy, yeah. I'm busy, and so yeah. it's been absolutely fantastic that we can manage to connect for yeah. uh, a, a, you know an hour or so, an hour and a half to to, to talk about this. Mm. What's next for you? What's on the horizon? I'm off to the New Forest. Um, well, no, that's a lie. What am I doing with survival? I'm <laughs> well, going just generally, what's, what's yeah. a, you know, yeah. So the, the book's out next week, and I've got a few um, sort of promo things that I'm doing in Bristol and London. Uh-huh. Um, and then I'm going up to a literary festival at Oop North to talk about it there. And then on that's the Sunday. And then on the Monday, me and my little team are taking some new instructors to the New Forest to teach the first few phases of how to be a survival instructor. So that's going to be good. We're meeting Colin Towell, who is also one of our guys. We'll be chatting around the campfire with Colin because it's been a little while since I've seen him. So that's that's the, the next immediate things over the next three weeks. And then it's, it's back into the, the cycle of teaching people how to be military survival instructors. And it's a termly thing. And, you know, it's the people that you meet while you're doing it. It's the most fun of that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. What about you? What are you going next? Um, I've got a, a book to finish writing now. Um, oh. Yeah. What's, so, on then? What, it, what's that? Well, it's it's on kind of camp craft and axe skills. Um, oh. It's based on one of my courses. I was approached by a publisher who wanted yeah. me to write a book based on one of the courses that I run. So, oh, I've got cool. to uh, I've got to try and find the time to finish writing that now. So I've <laughs> had a very busy spring teaching, and I've got like yeah. a month or so now where I really need to kind of get this wrapped up before I've got stuff later in the summer where I'm out, sort of yeah. August, September, October. Um, yeah, I've got stuff. I've got stuff in the UK, and then I've got yeah. stuff in Canada, and then stuff back in the UK, up in Scotland in October. So, oh, yeah, so I need to get this writing finished um, in the next month or so. so. You'll be getting through the coffee then. Yeah, definitely, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Any tips? Coffee. Coffee. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, that no, that, that no works. Tips from me, mate. I'm sure you'll be fine. Well, we'll see. We'll see. I'll let you know. Nice one. I'll send you a copy when there's uh, when oh, it's brilliant. done. Yeah. Love I don't, to see it. Yeah. I don't think it's going to be published until next year, but um, yeah, it's uh, probably early next year. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So if people want to um, find you, connect with you, follow you online, John, where's good? We mentioned Instagram. Where can they yep. find you? I've got a website, um, mm-hmm. johnhudsonsurvival.com, mm-hmm. and that has got the the feeds that you mentioned at the bottom of it. Or uh, I'm on Twitter and I'm on Instagram, but. Um, it's like I'm, I'm not a very, very good blogger, so I'll be sporadic at best. But I'll, I, if there's something that I think is interesting happening, I'll, I'll try to take a photo and bang it onto Instagram. I think that's uh, John Hudson's survival as well. Mm-hmm. But yeah, um, or alternatively, I don't know, join the Royal Air Force and we'll meet in the training school. <laughs> Brilliant. So you've got no no, uh, no intention to retire anytime soon then in that respect? No, no. I enjoy my job too much, Sounds I think. like it. Sounds yeah. like it. Yeah, well, it sounds like you found the right place for yourself in the world. So that's... Uh, yeah massive enthusiasm that's fantastic so yeah um thank you john thank you for the time um and i know you're busy you know in the sort of book launch mode at the moment so it's it's busy hopefully people can catch one of your talks maybe and um if not certainly get hold of one of your books um yeah yeah brilliant
Good stuff. Mate, thanks, thanks very much for having me on to chat, Paul. It's been, been an absolute pleasure. No, mine too. I feel like we've only just sort of scratched the surface, but uh, yeah. sort of, yeah, got to kind of put a line under it somewhere <laughs> and maybe we'll have a round two at some point. So Done. Well, thanks again to John for his insights and perspectives. And just for the record, John didn't just hang up on me or me on him there at the end. We talked a bit longer on the call before saying goodbye. We did say goodbye properly. I just didn't record the end of the conversation. Anyway, check out the page on my blog associated with the podcast. That's paulkirtley.co.uk forward slash podcast 44. There you'll find all the relevant links associated with our conversation. There's also an Amazon link to John's book, How to Survive. Not only do you help out John by buying his book, you also help support this podcast by buying through the Amazon link on my site as I gain a small commission from this at no extra cost to you. And of course, you gain a great book. So go and check out the show notes, the links, etc. at paulkirtley.co.uk forward slash podcast for four. And while you're there, if you're not already subscribed to the email updates on my blog, please do register. All you need to do is leave your first name and your email address, and then you'll receive emails from me letting you know about articles, videos, and podcasts when they appear on my blog, as well as other useful information. So, all worthwhile stuff, lots of free information there, lots more good guests coming on the podcast. So, keep an eye out for the next podcast. Thanks for listening to this one. And I look forward to speaking to you again on the next Paul Kirtley podcast soon. <laughs>